All right, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, if you have been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we have for some time now been journeying through the book of Romans, and um, we're, we're, we're trying to strike a balance here. So you will sometimes see churches that spend years going through the book of Romans, and it's like each week we're going to take one word and consider what this word means, and then churches that kind of fly through it quickly, we're trying to find some happy medium there, and so we're taking um, a little less than a year to try to go through all of this, and um, today we are in chapter 8. This is part 2 of uh, two sermons on the end of chapter 8, and we're going to begin in verse 18 today. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope is that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord, guys. Thanks be to God. All right, friends. uh, As I said, this is going to be part two of our look at the end of Romans chapter eight. Uh, Rather than dividing this into kind of two sections, 
I really felt like it would be beneficial for us to take a couple of weeks here, kind of consider the whole text, because we're about to get into chapter 9, and chapter 9 is historically one of the more controversial passages in the entire book. So I want us to have a strong foundation going into chapter 9, which is what we're going to begin next week. And if you missed last week's message, I would just encourage you uh, this week, you can go to covenantshreveport.org. You can listen to that message. I would encourage you to go back and listen through it. We explored the issue of suffering uh, in the Christian life through Paul's lens, which was basically this when you grasp the implications of what Christ has done for us, like when you really start to get what he has done on the cross through his sacrifice, that it wasn't just to free us from death and hell, that that's a part of it, but even above that, it was to call us to be children of God, to give us the ability to be children of God, not just saved, but adopted into his family, Paul says, as co-heirs with Christ. Like when you really start to wrap your mind around what he has done for you, then it really doesn't matter what you experience in this life. Like if those things are true, if we are his children, if we're going to sit at his table, if we're going to be a co-heir with Christ, then who cares what I have to experience right now in the brokenness of this world, in this temporal moment? It doesn't matter when you compare it to the glory of what is to come. So if you want to dig more into that, I would really point you towards last week's message and you can spend some time there. And one of the things we see in Paul's life is, man, he really believed this, right? He really believed that what was to come was greater than what is right now. And, and you see it fleshed out in how he operated, in what he did, in how he lived. And um, so this week, I want us to consider two new words that Paul has introduced us to here in chapter 8, because they are really going to set the table for what we get into in chapter 9. And in the process, I want us to get really comfortable with this notion. God is a God who chooses. God is a God who chooses. Would you guys humor me and just say that with me for a moment? God is a God who chooses. We're going to try to get real comfortable with that concept today. If you have your Bible open, look with me at verse 28. Devin's going to put it up here on the screen for us as well. Verse 28, here's what it says. And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We spent a lot of time on that verse last week, didn't we? Because that verse gets thrown around a lot in our world today. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the first word we're going to explore today is the word predestined, which is also the root of this bigger word predestination, which is a biblical doctrine. And what we said last week was that depending on the type of church that you grew up in as a kid, you either never talked about this doctrine or you talked about it all the time. I found that for most people, there's not a lot of in-between. Uh, I found that people either have a strong opinion about the doctrine of predestination or they can't even begin to explain to you what it is, right? There's just not a lot of middle of the road there. I don't know where you fall uh, individually, but um, hopefully as we examine the scriptures, we're all going to gain a greater understanding of what the Apostle Paul 
is getting at here. Uh, so if you're someone has, who has a strong opinion on this, by the way, let me just call you today to try to set aside maybe some of the things that you've heard or maybe some of the theologians that you've read, not that those things are bad things, but to try to set those aside because our task here is to really try to consider what is in the biblical text, what is on the page, like what is the Apostle Paul trying to say to us. That's really our purpose as we examine this passage of Scripture. Now, first, while we associate this word with this larger biblical doctrine, realize at this point that Paul is simply trying to explain the process of sanctification to his readers. He's trying to explain the process of sanctification. We've said in past weeks, in terms of like the narrative sweep of the Roman letter, that Paul began by trying to explain justification, which is the fact that through Christ we have been made right before God, even though we are not right before God, even though we have not uh, done anything to earn salvation or earn his good graces through Christ and Jesus's blood, we are justified before God. That's where he began this letter. And, and now he has moved into this stage where he is trying to unpack the process of sanctification. And sanctification is the gradual process through which we are being made by God to look more like Jesus in our lives. The gradual process where we are being made by God to look more like Jesus in our lives. It is a work that he is doing within us through his spirit. And verse 28 is key here because it lets us know exactly whom Paul is talking about when he starts talking about those that God has foreknown. We said last week that there is a sense in which God has foreknown everybody, right? Like we could extrapolate from Scripture this notion that before you were ever formed in your mother's womb, God knew you, right? Those things are true. But here, contextually, Paul's not speaking about all people. He's not saying that God has known everybody. That really wouldn't make any sense here, right? Why would, why would he say that in this way? Instead, the key here is verse 28. It is kind of the contextual uh, key that opens the lock for us as we're reading through this passage. Um, it's key because it lets us know exactly who Paul's talking about when he talks about those whom God has foreknown. We said last week that there is a real sense, um, just like I mentioned, that God has foreknown everybody. You weren't a surprise to God, right? You might have been a surprise to your parents, but you weren't a surprise to God. He knew you were coming. But in the context of Romans 8, Paul is talking specifically about those who love God and are called according to his purpose, He's talking specifically about those people. Verse 28, verse 28 sets that context and the good. We know that everything works together for the good. The good that he is working together for those people is that they would experience verses 29 and 30. The good is not just this random good that's based on your own understanding of goodness, right? So sometimes we say, as we said last week, maybe you have a loved one who was ill and you've prayed for them and they've gotten better. And, and you might be inclined to say, well, God works all things together for the good. And, and yes, God has healed your loved one. But in the context of Romans 8, 
that's not exactly what Paul's talking about here, right? The context is verses 29 and 30. And what 29 and 30 tell us is that those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, that they would be conformed to the image of his son, right? That's good. That sanctification would happen in their life. Um, he tells us in verse 29 that... Um, that they would be the firstborn among many brothers. That, that's continuing on that co-heirs, children of God theme that he's already worked on. Also, really good, right? That we would be co-heirs with Christ. Verse 30, those whom he's predestined, he's also called. Man, God has called those whom love him. And, and those whom he called, he also justified. Like he's made us right before the Father. Incredible news. And those whom he's justified, he's also glorified. He's given us honor that we don't deserve. And, and ultimately, our bodies will be made new, and, and we will be with him forever. So the good that he is working together for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes are all of these incredible things. I, I really can't think of better good than the good that God is working out through us, for us, um, through his great love. So if you're someone who loves God, Paul's point ultimately here is that things are going to be okay, right? We don't have to worry about the future. We don't have to worry about the present moment. In fact, we have nothing to worry about. Verse 31 is, if God is for us, who's, who's going to be against us, right? Like if all of these things are true, if God's working all of this stuff out, if he is the one who's doing it, it's not dependent on us, then good grief, What's to stop us? And the answer is nothing. Nothing can stop us. Because, because God has preordained or he's predestined that these things would be true. The Greek word here for that word is the word pre-horizo or pro-horizo. Sometimes you'll see it written like this, pro-orizo. And what's interesting is that this is a compound word. This is actually two words. The word pro in Greek means before. And orizo or horizo means boundary or to set boundaries. So this is actually the Greek word that we get our English word horizon from. Right? What is the horizon? It's a boundary. It's a set boundary between the earth and the sky. And so this word in its most literal translation means at some point before, boundaries have been set, like, like place markers have been set, milestones have been set in advance, pro horizo. When were they set? I, I don't know exactly. I just know it was before, right? So Paul's telling his readers, listen, we have nothing to worry about no matter what we're suffering, no matter what we endure, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be concerned. We don't need to be worried because God has already set boundaries. God has already established. God has already ordained boundaries around the fact that everything will work together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And don't miss this. God's preordaining work should be a catalyst for like great peace and contentment within us right? If all of these things are true, and if we truly have nothing to worry about, and if it's not, you know, subject to change, 
then it should be this source of great peace in our lives, this source of great contentment for us. It is true that something has already been established. It's not a maybe. It's not an in the future type thing. It is a reality. Now look at verse 31. Devin's going to pull this up as well. What then shall we say to these things? Right, Everything Paul's just said, what do we say to this? Well, what we say is, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. The second new word that Paul has introduced to us is the word elect in verse 33. It's a word he hasn't used thus far throughout this entire letter. And this is an even simpler word um, in that it simply means chosen, right? We have an election coming up. Um, We're going to go to the polls and we're going to choose the candidates that we want, right? And and there's um, embedded in this, uh, this notion that we're choosing the ones we like. We're choosing the ones that are favored in some way. Like, you don't choose candidates you don't like, right? You choose the ones that you favor in some way. So the Greek word there is eklektos, eklektos. It's obviously the place where we get our word election as well. And so, again, Paul's point here is, believers, you have nothing to worry about no matter what you're experiencing. God has already set the boundaries regarding the good that will come for you. And because you were favored by God in this way, because you've been chosen by God, nothing can separate you from this. Nothing can separate you from this. The proof of this in Paul's mind is the fact that God didn't even spare his own son Jesus. That God was so committed to this preordained reality that he sacrificed his only son. That that was part of the plan all along, right? This wasn't some Hail Mary on God's part. This wasn't some audible that he called in the middle of all of this. This was part of the plan and that's how serious God is about this. This is how serious God is about what he has preordained. He was willing to sacrifice his only son. So that this good that Paul's talking about, so that all of this could come to fruition. Because without Christ, there's no way any of this stuff could happen. That is commitment. Now, my experience has been that whenever we start talking about God choosing things in an explicit way, for some reason, we're inclined to get a little bit uncomfortable. We get uncomfortable with that notion. And I don't really know why that is because we talk about God choosing things in other terms all the time, right? As we examine other areas of scripture, as we talk about the attributes of God, as we talk about how he operates, we talk about him choosing things all the time. We serve a God who chooses. We talk about God creating the heavens and the earth. He made a choice to do that. He elected to do that, you could say, right? We talk about God calling people, choosing people. He chose Noah, right? He chose Abraham. He chose Jacob. He chose Moses, who we read about. He chose Joshua. He chose Samuel. He chose David. Do you see the pattern here? Throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, Jonah, I mean, you can just make this long list of people who were not perfect people by any stretch of the imagination. People who had not, who had not necessarily like earned the right to be chosen were chosen by God. 
and called and sent. We talk all the time about Israel being the chosen people of God. Well, why not the Amalekites? Why not the Phoenicians? Why not some other group of people? God chose the Israelites as his people. We talk about God's will, that God has purposes and plans. I mean, the church I grew up in as a kid, I heard over and over again, God has a plan for your life. God has things that he wants for you. God has purposes for you that he has called you to. Friends, we serve a God who chooses things. And Paul's point is, again, that that should be incredibly reassuring to us. Why? Because God is perfect. God is perfect. I'm not perfect. How many of you would say, I've made perfect choices in my life? In fact, for many of us, it's quite the contrary, isn't it? When we look back over our lives, what we see, because we kind of, we have selective memory, what we see are not the great choices we've made. When we look back over our lives, most of us really dwell on the poor choices we've made, don't we? Even Paul does that in his writing. He's like, guys, you don't understand. We've seen this. So often, I don't even do the things I want to do. I don't even understand why I do that. God's not like that. God's not a man. He's not like us. And even as we look back over the history of the world, the history of mankind, a history in which there has been a great deal of sin and brokenness, here's what we know. None of this caught him off guard. None of this surprised him. So it should be reassuring to us that we serve a God who chooses and who is perfect in his choosing. We don't serve a God who leaves things up to chance. He's not up in heaven flipping a coin. He's not just sitting there hoping his plans will come to fruition. His plans will come to fruition. Amen? His plans will come to fruition. That's Paul's whole point here, right? He's preordained it. Like back then, before, it's set. The boundaries are in place. It's happening because he is God. And if he's for us, who can be against us? There is no doubt in this. There's no what if in this. There's no maybe in the future in this. We don't serve a God who embraces the concept of randomness. I'm going to stop there for today because this is just kind of, kind of our appetite as we get into next week. As we launch into chapter 9, God is in control. And as Paul will get to in chapter 9, as he starts breaking down instances in the Old Testament where God's sovereignty has been seen, where God's perfect sovereignty, his ability to do what he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, and to do it perfectly. We go into it with this foundation that says he is good, he doesn't make mistakes. And we can put our complete trust in him. Just look at what he's given us. Just look at what he's done for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of your word. And even when we encounter difficult concepts that we can't even claim to fully understand, Father, we recognize that you are good, that you are perfect. And we want to rest in that. Father, I pray that we would so so completely buy into the notion that you are a good father 
and that we have been adopted into your family as your children, not just saved from death and hell, but truly given a new life, a new existence in your kingdom. God, would we so believe that in the way that the Apostle Paul seemed to, that we would be unmoved by the problems or the challenges or the sufferings that we encounter in our everyday life. Father, we see in your word that like the mark of true faith is endurance. And that, and that makes sense as we read Romans 8. That if we really are your children, that what is to come for us is so much greater than what is right now. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. Come and make all things new. Even though that might be scary to some of us, even though we might not know what that really means or what that will look like, we confess that we trust you. May we increasingly, through the power of your Holy Spirit, may we increasingly place our trust in you, Father, and may we be willing to give over our whole lives to you so that we can be conformed to the image of your Son. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.